as you probably know, we've taken a break from our series on Ezra Nehemiah, and last week um, we had our, our sermon on the Trinity that followed the Trinity Conference, and then this week we're just starting a really short series, just a kind of a three-part, really just two-part series, our Easter series, and uh, we'll be looking um, at Philippians today, but um, on Good Friday, we're just going to do what we've done the last couple of years, just a very simple service on Good Friday. The difference will be that we will be observing uh, the Lord's Supper on Good Friday, so we invite you to that, um, but really it's a, it's a time to, to try to observe Good Friday the way I think it was intended to be deserve, observed, which is um, reflecting on, on the death the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and and taking time to do that and and you know not trying to rush ahead to the resurrection and so we will we'll do that on Good Friday and of course next week is our our Easter service today we're going to look at Philippians um, and we're going to look at you know the sermon that I've just entitled the high price of salvation and when we think about the price of salvation you know we think about a lot of different things. Um, and even when we just think about prices, like, you know, what is a, you know, what is something worth? Well, you know, as someone has said, something's worth whatever willing, someone's willing to pay for it. Well, that's kind of true. It's not totally true, but um, it's kind of true. Um, one of the hobbies I used to have, I haven't done it in a long time, was I used to collect, like, baseball cards and football cards. And and if you wanted to collect the kind of holy grail of uh, baseball cards, then you were going to get one of these cards. It was a card of a player called Honus Wagner. Um, most people know nothing about Honus Wagner except that he's on the most valuable card um, in, in baseball, really of just about any card. In fact, um, the most recent one of these sold for about one and a half million dollars. Um, and... You might go like, why is it so, you know, so expensive? What's so great about that? Is that, is that card made out of gold? Um, you know, does it speak to you? Um, you know, why is, it, why is it so valuable? Well, it's valuable for a lot of different reasons. One is because it's old, but as we all know, just because you're old doesn't make you valuable. Um, not thinking of anyone at that comment, but... But just because something's old doesn't make it valuable. It's also rare. But just because something's rare doesn't make it valuable. Honus Wagner was a really good player, but he's not considered like the greatest player. He's, I don't even know that he would be in the top 10 or 20 of the greatest players of all time. But people have decided that it's valuable. And valuable enough that when it's put in an auction, it can go for over one and a half million dollars. I have a tobacco card. That's what these are called. They used to come in tobacco packs. Uh, when I collected them, just full disclosure, they weren't in tobacco packs. There was gum, okay? So, um, yeah, it wasn't when I had a smoking habit, which I've never had. But the originals came in a tobacco you know, card, and I actually have one of these cards, uh, but not Honus Wagner. I have some other guy. I don't even know his name, but Again, it's old and it's rare, but it's not necessarily valuable unless 
People consider it, that it's valuable. But it's interesting how we put value and, and a price on things. And when we think about things, we, we try to have some gauge for it. But I think we also put a price on how much we're willing to do for someone else. Even the most giving people that I know, even the most giving people, they will only give what they feel people deserve. Now, that doesn't mean like they only give to like really good people, and they don't, it doesn't mean that they only give to people who are, who are giving back to them. But we kind of have a price. We kind of have a level of like how much we are willing to do for someone. And if we're honest, there are certain people we are willing to do way more for than others. Why? Well, I think it's because we've put a price on that. We've put a value on that. Well, if we were to think about God and think about Jesus Christ, and if we were to think about how He looks at us, What was he willing to give? What was he willing to do? What value did he place on us? And I think we need to think about that. I think, you know, when we really try to understand Christianity, we try to understand Christianity in its fullness, there's always these two roads that run. You know, there's the, there's the one we read about in Amazing Grace, when we sing, right? that saved a wretch like me, right? There's, there's this sense of us being wretches. There's another word in another song that called us worms. Um, kind of the modern version of that song is taking the word worm out. But there's that where we understand who we are in comparison to God. We understand that, that how far we are from God. And there's certainly that part. There's that, there's that part of understanding that we are, we are wretches, we are worms. But there's this, other, there's this other side, that though we are wretches and though we are worms, God placed a value on us. He placed a value on us. And it's, and it's a high value. What he was willing to do for our salvation so we're going to read about that, and we're going to read about it from the letter to the Philippians. And, you know, we, we did a study on this last year, so um, we did our, a sermon series on Philippians, and I, and I know a lot of you are now experts on Philippians, so you could, you could tell me the context, but I'm not going to, you know, give you opportunity right now. I'll just do it for you, because you guys don't want to brag. Um, but we know Paul's writing from house arrest. He's, he's waiting. He's made an appeal to the emperor. Um, he's waiting. He could be waiting a few days. He could be waiting years. Um, if he ever sees the emperor, he could be freed. He could be executed. All kinds of things could happen. As he's sitting there, there could be 
Um, people that are accusing him, which are the Jewish leaders, they could be trying to bribe the emperor to do what they want him to do. And so he's there. He, he has a very uncertain future from a, from a worldly sense. But he, he's never been more certain. He's never been more at peace. He's never been more faithful. And if you remember when we went through Philippians, that was, that was kind of the message. It was, it was being joyful and being faithful in all situations. And he's trying to encourage this church. And remember, it's kind of a weird picture. The dude that's in prison is trying to make the people who are free have joy. He's trying to tell them, you guys be happy. When that would usually be the opposite, right? If, you know, if you got a letter from somebody who's been in the hospital for months and they're trying to encourage you to be joyful, I mean, it would be, you would think, like, that's kind of weird. And it, it is. Because we always think, like, oh, we, we should go visit them to help them be joyful. But Paul's doing this, and, and in the midst of this letter, he writes one of these great passages of Scripture about Jesus. And he actually had been encouraging them to, you know, to really be like um, united and to be strong. And he had talked about how you know, the, the key to that is humility. And when we think about the unity in the church, I often use this metaphor that, 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 the, that humility is the mortar of our unity. You know, mortar is that stuff between the bricks that holds everything together. Once we lose humility, we may still have strong bricks that are stacked up, but they can be easily pushed over. And so he's going to then say, like, this is what I'm talking about. I don't want you to go, humility, what does that mean? And then go off and just come up with your own definition. He goes, no, you don't need to go anywhere else to find a definition or an example of humility. You only need to look at Jesus. And so that's what he does here. And he's going to write this, and some people believe, and it's pretty clear from the Greek structure, that at least part of this was, a, was either a song that was sung, or it was something that was recited in the church, either before or after Paul wrote this, probably before. And so what he's telling them is not necessarily anything new to them. But he's reminding of them of this very important thing, that it's, this truth has always been right there. You might have even said those words repeatedly. You know, how many people sing worship songs, sing hymns that say all kinds of things, and they just say them because they like the song, or the song is familiar, or they think it's beautiful, but are missing the truth that's in all of those songs. Well, the fact that Paul has to remind them of it tells us that this isn't a new thing, that this has been going on for as long as there's been a church. And so he says this. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, one of the great Christological passages in the New Testament tells tells us about who Jesus is. And for some of this, it's pretty familiar. You know, we see there in verse 7, he says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, one of the things, unfortunately, that happens is, is we get lost sometimes in the phrasing and the details, and we miss the big message. One of the things I try to do when I teach people about Bible study is we need to try to focus on the big message first. We need to try to understand overall what something is teaching, and then we can go and have our discussions about, you know, some of the smaller things. But there's a lot of people that, that, that spend a lot of time trying to think, you know, what does empty mean? What does that mean when he says empty? You know, and they'll, you know, have debates about it, and, and in so doing, they, they miss the main point. The main point is that here is the Son of God. Here is the Son of God who's, who's existed in, in perfect perfection. Does that sound redundant? It is, but I think it makes the point. But He's, he's existed in perfect per- perfection. As we talked about last week with the Trinity, He's been in this perfect unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the perfect eternal expression of love. And then it says... He's willing to take the form of a servant. He's willing to be born in the likeness of men. It's a huge step. It's not a lateral move. It's a huge step down. And again, we we miss that point. We just... We get caught up in, you know, what was he giving up? Who cares what he was giving up at this point? The fact is, is that he was willing to give something up. And it was a lot. But then it goes even further, and it says, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death on a cross. He allowed his, his creatures He allowed his creatures to falsely accuse him. He allowed his creatures to to mock him and then to kill him. But he, he didn't do it simply for his creatures. He first and foremost did it so that in obedience to the Father. I'm sorry, uh, the slides are kind of jumping uh, too far ahead. Go on back. Keep going. One more. 
one more. Yeah, keep going. Go, yeah. Although, actually, no, you can stay there. Stay there. Okay. So he humbles himself, and he does so in obedience to the Father. So the, the, you know, the great point of this passage is that the key relationship is the relationship of the Son and the Father, and what the Son is doing on our behalf. So this text is showing us what humility is, but it's also showing us the high price of salvation. So the first thing we see is we see that Jesus moves toward us. He moves toward us even though we were to blame. He moves toward us even though we were to blame. If the Son of God were to come visit His creation, what kind of a welcome did He deserve? Not the one He got. In fact, we probably couldn't do enough to welcome him. Even our best would have fallen short of what he deserved. He deserved even more than the greatest hero's welcome. But he moves toward us. He moves toward us, even though we were to blame. Think about that. Think about how many times you've had conflict in relationships, and especially with people that you really care about, people that you really love. And you know that, that even if you overcome this, that, that it's a struggle. If you feel you've been wronged, if you feel it's that person's fault, the hardest thing for you to do is to move towards them. You want them to move towards you. Ever heard this phrase? The fact that you don't know what you did wrong makes it even worse. Um, not saying I've heard that or not, but most married men have heard it. Um, but it says... He moves toward us. And it's hard for, for, for us to, to think about it because we think if we've been wrong, then it's that person who needs to come to us. But Jesus comes to us and he's done no wrong. We're the ones to blame. He deserved a hero's welcome. But he, he comes to us and he comes to us in really the only way that we could have understood what he was trying to communicate with us. If he had come in power, he would have sent the wrong message, and we're going to see that in a second. If he had come in his fullness, he would have overwhelmed us, and we really wouldn't have understood. But understand, he moves toward us when I talk about God's love, 
You know, and we've talked about God's love a lot at this church, and we've talked about, you know, the idea of being unconditional and sacrificial. One of the ways you know you have God's love in your life is that God's love moves you to the person that you're having conflict with so that you can reconcile. It's your love that says, no, they're going to come to me. But it's God's love that, 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 is, that is relentless in pursuing reconciliation. And it does it not to win, but it does it because, because love wants love to be perfect. So Jesus moves toward us. But then it says, he takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. It tells us he doesn't just move towards us, he becomes like us. Again, this high price of salvation, the Son of God would become like one of his creatures. It's more than just humility. It's certainly humility, but it's more than humility. John sums it up just with that simple phrase, the Word became flesh. He became like us. Why is that such a big deal? Well, again, He could have not moved toward us, but then He could have moved toward us And in moving toward us, he could have just come just as he is and we wouldn't have gotten it. He becomes like us, again, as a great demonstration of his love for us because it's the only way, one, he's going to be able to help us understand what he came to do and then to do it. He came to us. He became like us. We were talking about this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning, um, just talking and, and we've been studying Proverbs, and, and, and it came up a question about, you know, relationships, if there's conflict in relationships. And in talking about it, you know, we, we came to this, this, you know, understanding that, that sometimes the reason conflict in relationship doesn't get resolved is because we think we are communicating very clearly to the other person. And the other person is either intentionally or is just incapable of understanding. Often we think it's intentional. You can imagine if you have two people, you have a married couple, both assuming the other person is understanding exactly what they're saying with all the feeling and everything, the motivation, attitude with which they're saying it, why there's no resolution. But what we see with Jesus is the Word becomes flesh. He becomes like those He loves. That tells us in our own relationships, if we want to love like Jesus loves, then we try to understand each other's context. We try to understand not because we're trying to endorse it, 
The world says, understand everybody's context, everybody's different, and say they're all good. No, that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us, understand each other so that you can communicate with each other better, so that if teaching needs to take place, teaching is more effective. If reconciliation needs to take place, reconciliation is better. If healing needs to take place, healing is better. Everything becomes better when we become like each other by understanding one another. We can't become like each other the way Jesus became like us. But we can certainly become like each other in a lot of ways in simply trying to understand. And it's hard for us. Again, we, we are thinking like, you know, it's, it's clear to me. I understand it. This is what I like. This is what works for me. How many, you know, problems that have happened in the church, you know, I don't know how long this has been going on. I have only know how long I've been alive. And in all the years I've been alive and I've been in church, you've had all of these 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 arguments and debates and discussions about, you know, styles of music and, you know, how you do church and, you know, whether, you know, you know what, you know, what format and what you call things and, and all of these things go on all the time. And what I remember from so many of them and so many of the, you know, endless debates, endless discussions, people giving whatever opinion they want to give is that there was very little concern for the person on the other side of the issue. It was much more an assertion of what I want and what I think is right and what, and what I like and what my preferences are. And it didn't matter whether people were young or old. It didn't matter what position they took. But there wasn't an, this, what Jesus is showing us, that he's becoming like us. There wasn't this... I need to understand something from that person's perspective. And then we can talk. And then we can come to a resolution. No, we just want to go right to just firing our guns. See, Jesus is demonstrating true love to us, even here, even in the Incarnation. He comes to us. He becomes like us. And we can already see in our own lives how we think, how high that price is already. You know, if someone wrongs us, we can already think like how hard it is for us to move towards them. And what's worse is if someone's wronged you, how hard it is for you to try to understand things from their perspective. So even if, if, if that's the case at the human level, can you imagine what it is for the Son of God to do that for us? It's a huge price. It's a high value. And then the last thing we see here is we, we see His obedience and, and we see him becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
understand central to that is obedience. It's obedience of the Son to the Father. But also see that it's talking about the cross. And the cross, we know that the cross is, becomes this necessary step, this necessary moment in history. It has to take place if we are going to be saved. Jesus allows himself to be killed by the people he came to save. We were to blame. We created the mess. We created the trap. We made the choices that enslaved us to sin. None of it's Jesus' fault. And he doesn't just come and clean up the mess. He doesn't just come and say, like, yeah, let's just let's get some stuff right. You guys were taught wrong. Let me, uh, let me give you right teachings. He does give us right teachings, but that's not all that he does. It's not enough. The, the right teachings don't, you know, don't fix the problem. We're enslaved. It's our nature. Our nature is the problem. Our nature is what needed to be changed. And so he allows himself to be killed by the very people he came to save. I hope that's enough of a high price for you. But you might ask, why? Why would he do this? Why would he do it this way? Well, I don't have time to unpack all of this. We've been doing a lot of this on our Monday night studies um, and going through what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. So I'm not going to really unpack these points. I'm just going to give them to you. Why did he do this? Well, the only way to conquer the power of sin and death was through the cross. It was the only way. And the only one who could do it was the Son of God. The Son of God was the only one who could save us. And the cross was the only way. You see, if there were any other way, if there were any other way, you know, why not choose that way? Why choose the way that had the highest price? I think when we remember this passage and we remember the high price, it helps us see that, that, that this infinite price of salvation, because that's what it is. It's an infinite price of salvation. That that price is so high that it, it reminds us of the distinction between human and divine. It reminds us of how great God is, and especially in comparison to us. 
Why? Well, for us, it was the only way that he was going to reveal to us what we needed to know most about who God is. We've already said Jesus Christ couldn't just come in his fullness because if he came in his fullness, we either wouldn't have gotten it or it would have overwhelmed us. But he reveals to us on the cross. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we are at sinners, Christ died for us. He reveals himself on the cross. He reveals what's most important. And what we see on the cross is that the most powerful being of all, not just the most powerful being in this universe, the most powerful being of all did not use power. The most powerful being of all did not use power, but he used self-sacrificing love. Again, every time I say the word love, I just need to remind you, it's not the love that we see defined in the world and sadly often defined in the church. It's not some ooey-gooey sentimentality, although you need to know that there is, there is feeling that's attached to love. the most powerful being of the universe, most powerful being of all, did not use power. He's not telling us all that he is, but he's telling us one of his most like, fundamental, essential characteristics that John will write later on in the letter when he says, God is love. He's all the other things too, by the way. He's, he's, he's king. He's, he's sovereign. He's Lord. He's holy. Don't, don't say like, oh, once I say love, I can just throw away all the rest. It's one of the reasons um, when, we, when we talk about, you know, when, you, when you hear people talk about, you know, all, all religions are about love, so they're all basically about the same thing. No, they're not. Just take five minutes to understand what the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about love, and you will see that it does not line up with just about any other definition. And if you take 10 minutes, you'll see it doesn't line up at all. The standards are higher. It's the one that says, this is not possible. You cannot do this. It is not natural to you. It's different. And the most powerful being displays this for us. He did not display his might. He did not display his power so that he could display his love. It is not because he wasn't powerful. We've talked this, about this before, but, but if you are going to have true humility you actually have to have some power, some strength. If you are being humble because you are weak, that's not really humility. You have no choice but to 
be dominated by someone else. Humility is, is the restraining of power. It's the control of power. He doesn't display His power. He doesn't display His might. Although He has both power and might with endless resource, He doesn't display that so that He could display His love. It's a high price. One of the things that this should remind us is that if you are truly going to follow Christ, if you're going to follow the way, the way is love. And for Jesus, that way led to the cross. If you think Christianity is about, oh, let's all become Christians and then we'll love each other and then everything will be awesome and great, you you haven't been reading the Bible. You haven't been listening to the words of Jesus. If you're seeking that kind of church, if you're seeking that kind of faith where everything is just going to be happy and blessed from this day forward, come talk to me because I can recommend some places to you. Now, make no mistake, there is joy in following the Lord. There are blessings in following the Lord. The Bible promises us peace, promises us this, the fruit of the Spirit. Make no mistake, it is the best way that we can live, but it's not a way that's just, you know, skipping through the forest and everything is great and sunshiny. No. It's a hard way because as God's love brought him to us, when we have God's love, it will take us to people who were like how we were. And Jesus says, some of them, some of them are going to be grateful and they're going to thank you, and they're going to welcome you. But some of them, and sadly, sometimes a lot more of them, they're going to hate you, and they're going to reject you, because you're showing them a way that they don't have to be how they are. You're showing them a way out of the misery that they've accepted. You're showing them a way out of the sin that they think is actually okay and good. And you're showing them that way and they know that it's possible. It's a high price of salvation. Any price we pay in sharing the gospel is tiny compared to the high price that Jesus Christ paid for us. And as I hope this week that we continue to think on this and we, we remember what He did for us. And it's more than just what happened on the cross. It's when He emptied Himself 
became like us, moved toward us, that all of this comes in to the high price he paid for us. 